trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? You having a good summer thus far? I hope you're enjoying this humidity convention that's moved into town for a while, nice and warm, except for those moments when it drops 15 degrees and you have sideways freezing rain flying at you in those moments. I'm from Texas. You live in the South. That's how we can say that all hail is breaking loose, If you, depending on what part of Atlanta you're in. That was pretty remarkable the last couple of days. Listen, I want to begin today by asking you to turn with a neighbor, turn to somebody next to you, even if you don't know them, and just try to answer this question question. How many words do you think you say in a typical day? Turn to somebody and try to guess how many words you say. Well, believe it or not, they actually have tools that can help to measure this, and there are scientists that have way too much free times on their hand, and And they've got some pretty good research that shows that the average American adult speaks about 16,000 words per day. And and there's a lot of mythology out there. There's a lot of people that think that that women use more words than than men. But actually, believe it or not, the research does not... Uh, does not demonstrate that, that men and women, they've tested this, actually tend, when you average everything out, tend to use about the same amount of words. The reality is that you have some people who are light users of words, who, and then you have some people who are some fairly heavy users of, of words. And so some people use as few words in a day as like 7,000 in a day. Some people speak 25 or, or 30,000. I, I just had an elder in the church text me that his wife was sitting next to him in the, in the first service, and she looked at him and she said, if it's 16,000 for an average American, I promise you, you're a 50. You're a 50,000 um, word user in, in the course of a day. So a typical person will, will speak about a half a billion words in your lifetime. And to put that kind of, because that's just such a big number, it doesn't make sense. What that means is, is you could take the Bible, you would open it up, and you would start reading cover to cover. You would read it out loud 625 times in your lifetime. That's about the number of words that you would use. And the question is, how are you using those words? I mean, we talk a lot in church about what we think. We talk about a lot in church about what you do. Uh, we talk a lot in church about what you believe. And today, I just want to zoom in on what you say. If you were to open the Bible and open it to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, it, it's amazing to me that the first thing that we know of what God does is that God speaks. That there's this rhythm, there's this cadence of, of God saying, let there be blank, and it happens. I don't know about you, but my experience is I speak and not automatically things happen. That's true at church, that's true at home, it's, it's true on the roads of Atlanta, everywhere. Um, you know, but whatever God says actually happens. 
And I actually love the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible describes it because we tend to see let there be, and that to us, that's kind of clothed in religiosity. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about it as kind of the, the beginning of a conversation. So the way the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about it is he says, you know, hello, light, hello, darkness. And he says, oh, you're good. And he says, hello, sun, hello, stars, hello, sky. Oh, oh you're also, you're really good. And then he turns and he says, hello, mountains, hello, waves and sea, hello, flowers that flourish. Oh, you're all, you're all good. And then he says, hello, birds of the air, hello, animals that crawl along the ground, and oh, hello, humanity, woman and man, and you're very good. Talks about how God created Adam and Eve, and the first thing that Adam and Eve saw was God's face. So when you stop to think about it, it's amazing that the first thing that God does is that God speaks, and I think it's even more amazing next, the fact that he speaks and invites us into the conversation. Paul puts Adam under his arm and says, okay, let's name all these animals together. God invites humanity in the midst of all of our limitations, to participate in the ongoing work of creation, to be able to say that we get to be a part of it, and the way that we get to be a part of it in many ways is in the same way that God created it, with our words. There's a proverb in the Bible that says this, it says that the tongue has the power of life and death. Your words have creative capabilities. Your words can create life or they can destroy. We're in the midst of a series where we're talking about the book of Proverbs and we're talking about how there's about a hundred Proverbs on this particular topic. This is kind of a topical message. There's a hundred Proverbs that deal with what we say. And we're going to cover all of them in a very short period of time. Now we're just going to cover a couple. But what we're going to do is this is kind of our theme proverb for today. So I'd love for you to say this with me. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise bring healing. Just as your words can bring either life or death, your words have the capacity to either cut or to bring healing. And so as we're in this series of messages called Sacred Sound Bites, we're looking to the book of Proverbs for wisdom on how to do a variety of things in our life really well. And today, we're going to try to talk about what does it mean to use our words wisely. I don't know about you, but my mother told me when I was young to think before I speak. And so this is kind of the rubric for thinking before you speak. A variety of Proverbs that talk about, is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? And is it timely? Before you say something, is what you say true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? And is it timely? Let's first talk about whether or not what we say is true. In order to dive into this, we need to talk about a deep theological piece of art and work that is known as this film, Liar, Liar. Back in the late 80s, Jim Carrey started in this, starred in this movie that's pretty rough around the edges, pretty crass. You have this 
sleazy attorney who basically deceives for a living. And this attorney um, all of a sudden is cast under this spell and he cannot tell a lie. Everything that is in his mouth uh, is totally true. And so he says things that are absolutely ridiculous. And what's interesting in the film is that basically, because he has to tell the truth, his life systematically starts to fall apart. But also because of the truth, then his life starts to be redeemed. It's actually a pretty strange case study in the words that you shall know the truth and that the truth shall actually set you free. What would it be like to have a spell cast over us where we became people of the truth? In 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary uh, declared its word of the year, and the word of the year that it declared is the word that's circled on this front cover of The Economist magazine. It is the word post-truth. In other words, we live in a post-truth reality. We live in a post-truth politic. We live in a post-truth society, that there was something systematically changing in the way that we used our words in such a way that we were now describing ourselves as living in a post-truth time. Now, I actually don't believe that we actually think this. I actually think it's impossible to try to consider that we live in a post-truth time, because anytime somebody wrongs you, you're like, that's not right. But we do have this understanding of a competing truth. You know, it's, it's interesting. When you look back at the 2016 presidential election, they took the top 20 fake news stories and they compared them to the top 20 real news stories of the last 90 days before the election. And the top 20 fake news stories were shared far more prolifically than the top 20 real news stories. I think there's always been leaders who have been willing to deceive. It goes all the way back to Pontius Pilate at the trial of Jesus washing his hand. What I do think is interesting today is I think we as a society have now come to the point where we're shrugging our shoulders at the truth. And we're kind of giving up on it. Don't know that we can really find it. There was a study that was done by Stanford that talked about how 29% of us don't even believe when a media outlet fact checks something afterwards. We just kind of don't believe anybody's telling the truth anymore. There's a proverb that directs this. It says this. Let's say it together. The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. There is such a thing that is truth. There is such a thing as falsehood. There is such a thing as reality. There is such a thing as deception. And one of the top 10 is still that thou shalt not bear false witness. And one of the markers of followers of Jesus, one of the markers of God's people is that we are to be people who are committed to the truth and that we believe that that truth will actually set us free. But before we sit there and point our fingers at politicians and leaders and decry what's happening, I think we need to be able to do our own dishonesty audit. What's your relationship with the truth? There was actually a study that was done that showed that a typical American couple, married couple, 
10% of their words are used in a form of deception. That even in our most trusting of relationships, that we use our words in order to push away, to misdirect, to hide. I had a guy in a previous church that I would meet with every once in a while, and I would, he would invite me to ask nosy questions about him. And one time I asked him, I said, How, how's your relationship with honesty going? And he said, he said, he goes, I'm amazed at how easily I lie. And he said, you know what, I'm amazed at how, um, don't worry, he was just a financial manager, so the implications of lying is no big deal. And, and he said, he said, I'm amazed that I lie about stuff that I don't even care about. He says, Pastor, someone will come to me and be like, oh, do you know so-and-so? And he's like, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. And he's like, wait a minute. In his brain, he's going, I have no idea who that is. Or, or somebody was like, oh, my gosh, have you read this book? And he's like, oh, yeah, I've read that book. It's great. And inside, he's going, I've never seen that book before. Or have you seen this movie or whatever it is that... He's just like, I'm amazed at how fast and loose and how quickly it just comes out. And he said to me, why do I lie? We lie because we're afraid. We lie because we want to cover up. We lie because we're ashamed. We lie because we're, we, we want to keep people at a distance. We lie because we want to manage the impressions of others. We lie in order to try to get ahead. We lie in order to put somebody else down. Oh, there's a lot of reasons why we lie. But it just doesn't get us where we want to go. Before you say something, stop for a moment and just ask yourself, is it true? And let's stack hands as God's people and say, we're going to be people of truth. And when we get it wrong, we'll just own up to it. So that friend I referred to before, he, he actually started confessing immediately you know, it's like, hey, do you know so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. Actually, wait a minute. No, I don't. So the first thing is, is it true? The second thing, is it necessary? Because you can say something is true, but it's not necessarily relevant. It's not necessarily pertinent. It's not necessarily important to the person or the moment. Um, our youngest daughter, Ashby, um, is... Uh, is now in high school, but was in junior high, and we were having a junior high lock-in here at the church. And um, 24 hours, staying up all night. I noticed that not many of you volunteered for this junior high lock-in. And, and so uh, there was, Ashby was there kind of in the lobby area, and there was, this, there was this young girl that showed up who was new, who basically didn't know anybody. I mean, imagine junior high is awkward enough as it is, right? And then you walk in and you're like, I'm about to spend 24 hours locked in a building with all of these people. And I was so proud of Ashby because Ashby went over to kind of introduce herself to this person and to come alongside this person. And so Ashby was kind of helping her to kind of get acclimated and meet some people. And after a few moments, this, this girl kind of tugged Ashby on the shoulder and said, listen, I'm, I'm really shy. You just need to know I don't say a lot. And she was kind of apologizing for this. And Ashby looked right at her and said, that's great because I've got a lot to say. 
Ashby gets this from her mother. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Now, the first part was, is it true? Is it true? So, oh, so she gets it from her old man. There's actually a proverb that deals with this. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Let's say this together. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. You know, it's funny. When, when I think about my ministry uh, as, as a pastor, as a preacher, you know, you know, it is not hard for me to do sermon research. I love to read the text, to explore it, to read what other people think about it, to, to pray over it. I mean, that part's really easy, really natural. I love doing that part. I do not struggle with the delivery part. I love getting up and sharing what I've learned and talking about it with you. I consider what I get to do just such an incredible privilege. Do you know what the part that's really hard for me? The part that's hard for me is that middle part where I have to decide what to say and what to not say. What is right and relevant for you and what you don't need to hear. And when I look back over my early sermons, like the ones that, right when I came out of seminary, the ones that I preach, I'm not embarrassed by the research I did. I'm not embarrassed by the delivery of what I gave. You know what I'm embarrassed by? I'm embarrassed. I look at it and I'm like, why on earth did I think that people needed to hear that? Nod your head if you've ever heard a sermon that was like not relevant to your life at all. And yet, that's kind of what my problem was. As I was up there talking, but it wasn't what you needed to hear. Why is that? Well, for me, it's because I'm paid to stand up here and I got to fill the airtime somehow. <laughs> but I actually think that's a little bit of an analogy of we're actually uncomfortable with silence. And so the volume in terms of its loudness as well as the volume of the number of words, we're, we're swimming in a sea of words right now. Actually, I would say we're drowning in a sea of words right now. And so in order to be heard, in order to feel like we're making a difference, in order to feel like that we matter, in order to do anything at all, we feel like we just keep having to pile more words. Wouldn't it be great if God's people were not just known for people of the truth, but we were people who were known for our economy of words? That we weren't trying to just fill the noise. There's this, there's this great moment in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, and by the way, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans do because they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them because your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. Book of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. It says it like this. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart. Do not utter to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. And so let your words be few. This is like the best advice for pastors ever. God's in heaven, you're on earth, and let your words be few. Can I have an amen? amen. Barry, God's in heaven, you're on the earth, let your words be few. That's my charge to you. Is it true? Is it necessary? Thirdly, is it kind? Is it kind? There's a proverb 
that actually deals with this. Say this with me. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. I don't think any of you would argue with me that we live in anxious times. Fear factor is at an all-time high. And what the heart of the world needs is a kind word. And I know that the minute I say this, there's this, this misperception that kindness and niceness are one and the same, but they are not. I almost think of it like a, like a continuum, that on the one side you have angry words, on the other side you have nice words. Angry words are kind of like a, a hard exterior with a hard core, and nice words are like a, a soft exterior with this soft core. Kindness is in the middle between those things. It has that soft edges to it, but that firm core. The way that the Bible describes it in another place, in the book of Romans, it talks about how kindness, genuine kindness, leads towards repentance. You can tell if something is kind and not just nice if it opens up the doors of repentance. I don't think anger or fear ever really opened up genuine repentance. But neither does niceness. An example of this, I remember just this last year that, that Kelly said to me, she said, we need to talk about something. And she said, she prefaced it by saying, I don't want you to get defensive, which of course immediately made me go, walls up. And one of the things that I admire about my wife is that she wasn't angry with me and she wasn't being nice to just ignore the situation. There was something, she said, there's something that you need to learn as a father in the way that you are interacting with our daughters that I think can make it better. And so can we talk about that? And her kindness, the soft on the outside, but the firm on the inside, it made me want to be vulnerable, to repent, to be better. That's what kindness does. And so imagine if followers of Jesus today were known, what if people knew of Peachtree is a place of truth as well as that their words were few and that what we said was kind, that there was a gentility to what we said. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? And finally, is it timely? Because you can have something true and pertinent and kind, but your timing can be way off. And timing is everything. Let me give you an example of this. Imagine you're on a first date, blind date, first date. You show up, you sit down, the other person sits down, and you look, one per- you look at that other person and you say, wow, I love you. <laughs> What's that person going to do? A person is going to get up and leave because you are odd. (laughs) But imagine the other extreme. Imagine you've been dating that person for three years. You're sitting at the same restaurant. You've ordered the same food. You've been dating for three years, and that other person's pouring out their hearts and saying, I've been pouring into this relationship. I have been giving, 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 and I just don't know where we are. And you're like, "Oh, oh, okay, I love you. How's that person going to respond? Too little, too late, pal. Same phrase. Maybe even meant in a sincere fashion. But if your timing is off, 
doesn't matter. It was uh, earlier this week, it was Tuesday, and um, my wife Kelly has been in Los Angeles with a client, and uh, so it's been hard to connect over the phone because of the three-hour time zone difference, and so one of the only times that we could talk was like first thing in the morning for her. So she'd get up early to go work out at like five, and at that point it was eight o'clock, and we were still in the car driving to different kind of places where the kids were going for the day and me going into work. And uh, so it was five o'clock in the morning for her, it was eight o'clock in the morning for us, and you know, she calls, we put it on speakerphone, and I'm like, hey, babe, how are you? It's so good to hear you. Here's what's going on and all this stuff. And I can just feel her backpedaling on the phone. And I'm like, I, I mean, just tell. And I'm like, are you okay? Is, are you all right? And she said, I'm fine. It's just a little too early for the sunshine yellow energy of Rich Conwisher right now. <laughs> There's actually a scripture that deals with this. It's from Proverbs. Let's say it together. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Some of you are scrambling right now to write down this scripture. You're like, someone last service, they were like, oh my gosh, that's the most important scripture I have ever learned in my life. Where has that been? I am not a morning person. There's a reason we don't have an Easter sunrise service here at Peachtree. Because it might not be taken as a blessing. It's the greatest good news of all that he has risen. And you're like, it's too early. The timing's off. I don't care. (laughs) Timing is everything. This is a guy by the name of Steve Martin. Many of you know, uh, he got his start at Disneyland. When he was 10 years old, he started working at Disneyland. This was before some like child labor laws and things like that. <laughs> and, um, and eventually he worked from like some back office ways to being able to kind of, to, to work in the magic store is really where he got his start. And when he was done at the magic store, according to his autobiography, Born Standing Up, he, he said he would wander over to this place. It's called the, Gordon, the Golden Horseshoe. Now it's a restaurant, but it was a theater at the time. And there was a guy there by the name of Willie Bogue, who was the first stand-up comic that Steve Martin had ever seen. And Steve Martin, as a young teenager, would stand at the back and he's watching Willie Bogue and he's seeing this performance, his routine, over and over again. And Steve Martin's in the back of the theater and he's practicing every rhythm, every cadence, every phrase. He is mesmerized by this guy's ability to be able to deliver the punchline at just the right moment, to pause at just the right moment. In fact, he so got into this routine that he realized as a teenager that he had seen it dozens and dozens of times and that if asked, he could actually get up on the stage and do the performance. He had this, this vision, this dream that, that Willie Bogue was going to get sick and the manager's going to be like, what are we going to do tonight? And Steve Martin would volunteer as a tribute and they would put him up on the stage and he would, he would crush it just like Willie used to. And a little vision, a little seed got planted in Steve Martin. What would it be like to have a life where you could stand up and make people laugh and bring them joy? In order to do that well, he talks about you got to get the timing down. I know people 
who have hurt their relationships, friendships, marriages, things like that. They have spoken the truth and they have done so because it was necessary and they have done it in a kind fashion, but it was the wrong time. And because they were out of sync, they hurt the other person. Their words didn't bring life, they brought death. It cut instead of healed. There's a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, and uh, he wrote a book called Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, and it became popular in certain circles, and he would go on the circuit, and he would kind of do these seminars based on the book to help people to use their words wisely. And he would ask in the book, he would ask for a show of hands, he would say, raise your hands if you feel like you can go 24 hours without saying an unkind word about another person. Like, moment of truth, do you think you could do that? And he said, some people would raise their hands and say, yes, I can do that. And other people would raise their hands, they'd laugh, and they're like, no way. Like, no way I could go 24 hours without saying an unkind word. And he would call it his 24-hour challenge. And then he would say this, those who can't enter yes must recognize that you have a serious problem. If you cannot go 24 hours without drinking liquor, you are addicted to alcohol. If you cannot go 24 hours without smoking, you are addicted to nicotine. Similarly, if you cannot go 24 hours without saying unkind words about others, then you have lost control over your tongue. This is where we are today. We raise our hand and we just, we've given up. We're just like, There's, this is not possible. It's not realistic. He goes on to tell the story of another rabbi in Eastern Europe who was there and there was a guy in the village who started gossiping about that rabbi. He was saying untrue, unkind, unnecessary things about that rabbi. And eventually this person in the village realized that what he was doing was wrong. And so he went to that rabbi and he asked him for forgiveness and if there was anything that he could do to make amends. And the rabbi said, yes, there is. He said, go back to your home and take the pillow from your bed and walk outside into the street and rip your pillow open and then come and talk to me. That's what he did, ripped open his pillow it was one of those pillows that had feathers in it. The feathers went everywhere and came back to the rabbi. And he said, I did what you asked. May I now be forgiven? And the rabbi said, you lack one thing. You need to now go find each and every one of those feathers and put them back in the pillow. Because that is what your words have done to me. There is a rabbi that we have wronged. There is a rabbi for whom we need to seek forgiveness. But fortunately, this rabbi has a different response. His response is not that you and I have to go find all of our sins and put them back on our own. His response is, I will gather all of that together for you because you are forgiven. You and I live in an age where our words have more power than ever before. 
and regardless of the number of words that you say. We need to realize that we can either hurt with those words or we can heal. And that God has invited us into this creative task of speaking. And so what are you going to say next? Let's pray together. Lord, with the half a billion words that we will have in our life, will you help us now to stop and to think about what it is that we say? Thank you that you spoke long ago and that you continue to speak by your spirit and that Jesus is the true word of God who came just in the right moment of time in history and now has entered in, O oh God, into the timing of our hearts right now. Thank you for inviting us into the conversation and for giving us this most important and powerful of gifts. Lord, may we speak life. May we heal with our words. Forgive us for lying, for deceiving, for playing fast and loose with the truth, for bearing false witness. Forgive us for trying to fill the void with empty words. Forgive us for being nice or angry instead of being kind. And forgive us for being out of step and out of sync with the rhythms of your grace. Lord, the, if I ponder to think of all the feathers of my harmful words and misdeeds, I'm overwhelmed at the thought of trying to put all that back in the pillow. Thank you that your grace is sufficient. That you forgive before we even showed up. And so now, God, I pray for an anointing of your presence with our words. For the one who speaks angry words, will you calm the troubled waters of their heart? For the one who needs to speak up for truth and for justice, give them courage. But most of all, Help us to have a kindness that leads to repentance. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.